23. Uh, we're going to go ahead and read the entire psalm as we begin. Would you stand with me? We stand, of course, in honor of God's Word, a, a tradition uh, uh, that we receive from the priest uh, in, in uh, the book of... Uh, my mind's going blank. The priest, Ezra, thank you, from the book of Nehemiah. Okay. I hope that's not a sign of what's going to be taking place during the study. We'll see. Let's go ahead and read Psalm 63, beginning in verse 1. Actually, I'm going to begin in the inscription, and I'm reading out of the New King James Version of God's Word. A Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness... Of Judah. O oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise you. Thus, I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Because you have been my help, therefore in the shadow of your wings... I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory but the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. And Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts as we go through this 63rd Psalm. We pray that you pour your spirit out upon this place, even as, you, as we know he's already with us. But Lord, for the purpose of giving us understanding, Lord, uh, we, we need your spirit to uh, open the eyes of our hearts that we may see your truth and understand it. Lord, I pray that that he would glorify Jesus during this time, or that he would bring us into your truth. And so, Father, have your way with us. We thank you, Lord, for your love and kindness, your mercies that you've shown us. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You guys may be seated. As we begin this 63rd Psalm, we see in the inscription something very familiar, something that's missing that, um, I shouldn't say missing, something that simply is not there that we have seen in so many other inscriptions, which, which begin with, to the chief musician. Uh, David did not begin this 63rd Psalm in that way. He just simply writes in the inscription, a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, that doesn't tell us anything in and of itself except that David wrote it while he was in the wilderness. But as we look at the psalm, we can get a sense for 
uh, what he's saying there in, in, in regard to, you know, um, seeking after God, his soul thirsting for God and so forth, in a dry and thirsty land where there's no water, that would indicate perhaps him being in the wilderness, right? Um, but even as we look at that, we're going to be noting that not, that could be uh, both literal and, and figurative, that particular statement in terms of where he's at. But if we, look, if we go down to verse 11, we do see that he speaks of the king, speaking of himself, but the king shall rejoice in God. And so he wrote this psalm while he was king and while he was in the wilderness. And, and it, it would certainly seem to fit that time in his life, again, as with the last several psalms, if it's right in with those, if this is the case, that he wrote this while he was uh, in the wilderness after he had escaped Jerusalem when his son Absalom rebelled against him in the Absalom rebellion. That would seem to be when he wrote this. So, uh, you know, at that time, of course, David, very, uh, very emotional, a very tough time in his life. His own son had attempted a coup to take over uh, um, the nation of Israel from him as king. And, and so um, you can imagine the emotions that, that he was going through during this time. Certainly his soul was in a dry place where there was no water. And so this first verse certainly fits that aspect as well. So we, we, we think that that's probably an accurate thing. Of course, we can read, and I would encourage you to do this since we have been in these Psalms uh, in the last several weeks, uh, to read Second Samuel chapters 15 to 18, which are the chapters that deal with Absalom's rebellion, ending in that 18th chapter with Absalom uh, being killed. And, and so um, that's where we find those particular passage, passages. We see that David begins in verse 1 with the words, O God. Oh God, you are my God. Um, the, the Hebrew word God here is Elohim. You know, the, the very, uh, the Hebrew word that we find in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God, Elohim. It's, it's in plural form, uh, speaking of three or more. That's what the word actually means, or, or the, the, the ending of it, the uh, I am. And so speaking of, God in, in the Trinity, of course. But he says, God, oh God, you are my God. You are my strong God, or you are my mighty one, or you, my, you are my tower of strength. Uh, that, that word is uh, Eli, uh, not Elohim, but Eli, which means um, God, my tower, God, my strength. And so that, that's the idea behind that. So he speaks of his God, you are my God. Oh God, you are my God. So he's claiming that God belongs to him. You belong to me. But also there's the idea of him belonging to God as well. And it's, it's a reciprocal thing, of course. We belong to him. He belongs to us as our God. And, and so he's crying out to him as his God. And he says, early will I seek you. Early will I seek you. The, the idea of the word early, and in some translations uh, translate that word as earnestly I will seek you rather than early I will seek you. 
but the literal translation of that Hebrew word is early. But the idea behind it is that right away, first thing, there's w without any delay, a, a sense of immediacy. And so early I will seek you, it's like getting up in the morning and the first thing I'm going to do is seek after you. That, that's the idea behind that, that word. It could also apply to some kind of uh, uh, situation arises and right away you seek after God for help in that situation. It would apply there as well. Early will I seek you. And certainly believing that this psalm was written by David in the wilderness as he had fled from Jerusalem from the hand of his son um, Absalom. You know, it, it is just a, gives a real sense of the importance of all this. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So this, I, uh, this idea of thirsting for him. Now, you know, we all get thirsty physically from time to time, don't we? And we're in that time of year where it's consistently 95 to 100 degrees outside. You know, that, that, that's, that's what happens. If we go, out, go without water for a couple hours, we're, we get thirsty. The Lord created our bodies so that we'll have this sense of being thirsty when we need water. We can feel the, the dry mouth thing and all that, right? We, we need some water. And, and so, and, and we need some water simply because we cannot phys physically survive without it. You know, uh, we're supposed to be drinking like eight cups of water every day. I'm not sure how many of us are actually doing that. Um, I don't do it enough. I'll tell you that much, I know. But um, we can't survive without water. And that's the sense when he says, my soul thirsts for you. I cannot survive without you. That's the idea. Water is something that's essential for physical life. God is someone who is essential for spiritual life. Essential. Essential. And so that is, that's, that's the point behind him crying out to God in this way, my soul thirsts for you. But interesting though, interestingly, he then says, my flesh longs for you. So, these words carry along the idea that not only is it his soul, but his body. Spiritually and physically, he's longing for God. My, my flesh longs for you. Or my flesh yearns for you, or faints for you, or pines for you. This is the idea of, of that word. Um, not only does my soul thirst for you, my, my soul longs for you. It's a, it's a soul and body equally longing after God. Our whole being. I mean, we are created to be body, soul, and spirit, right? And it's a whole being longing for him, longing for his presence because we know that his presence brings blessing to us in every area of our lives. My flesh longs for you. And 
as I noted earlier, this idea of a dry and thirsty land, if, if they were in the, in the wilderness outside of Jerusalem, you know, um, that area is, is um, now, as we might go to Israel and see it, you know, there, there are areas that are built up and so forth, but, you know, it, 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 it's a desert area. It's a desert area there in, in uh, Judah. And that's what he would have seen. That's where he would have been. So it would have been literal in terms of the surroundings of where he was physically and figurative to describe the condition of his soul. Dry without water. In verse 2, so, so I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Now, obviously, if David is out in the wilderness, he's nowhere near the tabernacle that was there in Jerusalem. Of course, the temple had not yet been built. It was built by Solomon. He, uh, uh, he was not there to be able to go to the tabernacle to worship or to pray. You know, we, we know that a, a, a Jewish person would, would go to the tabernacle to pray several times a day, several hours at the third, sixth, ninth hour that they would go to pray. And he was unable to do that. He was unable to seek after his God with others at the tabernacle. He just had a longing to worship his God there. He calls it the sanctuary, even as this is a sanctuary. You know, the idea of, of sanctuary, of course, is, is a, a, a place that is set aside for a particular purpose. Our purpose is for the worship of God. That would, be the, that would have been the purpose for the tabernacle as well. You know, um, we know of, I mean, in, in our country, there, there are various places that are called wildlife sanctuaries. And we know of, of a sanctuary basically as it's kind of a safe place for those animals that are there. That, 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 that area is set aside for them and them only to provide safety for them. And certainly the sanctuary provides that for us. It's a place of safety because it's a place where we meet God as a group. It's not like we have to come here to find him. He's with us wherever we go, Right? But we as a group of people come to this place to worship him together uh, as his people, as his children. And so it, it just it provides just a, a beautiful, beautiful setting for us. But the idea of being set aside, set apart, that's why sanctuary. It's the same uh, uh, root word uh, uh, as sanctified or holy. Same root word, set apart. Interestingly, in, in 2 Samuel 15, we see some verses that speak toward this. 2 Samuel 15, now again, this is the, the first chapter in which we see um, Absalom coming toward Jerusalem. King David hears of it, and he says, let's get out of town. We don't want bloodshed. So, so he and his household... And those men that were with him, others that were with them, they left. And so in, in this, these verses, verse 24 and 25 of chapter 15 there, there was 
Zadok also and all the Levites with him, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. So as they left, Zadok led the Levites to bring the Ark of the Covenant with them. And they set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. Now, what is it that the ark of the covenant represented? The presence of God. Moses wrote that his presence dwelt between the cherubim which were on the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. And the area between those angels is known as the mercy seat, right? The very presence of God. And, and, and this is really what David's getting after here. He, he, he longed to go to the sanctuary to, to worship his God with others who loved his God as he loved his God. You know, coming together to worship. It's not so much that he just wanted to, to see the sanctuary, he wanted to spend time with his God. It, it, it was this idea of being with his God. Now, isn't it true that when we are, even as the, the Ark of the Covenant represented the, the, the very presence of God, and this is what David was longing for, isn't it true that when we sense the presence of God with us, I mean, we, we could just be reading the scriptures alone, you know, in, 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 in your office, in your bedroom, at the kitchen table, whatever it may be, you know, and, and we just sense the presence of God. Or we could be in a worship service, we sense the presence of God. A men's retreat, when uh, we, we, we can sense the presence of God. Many times we can sense that, but what, what, a, what a, a powerful sense that is. I mean, our, our hearts are just filled, aren't they, when, when, when that's taking place in our lives. That, that, that was the longing of David's heart, to know the presence of God. There's a fitting question that comes at this point to our own hearts. Do we thirst for God that way? Do we long to be in his presence? Do we long, do, do, does our flesh long for him in the same kind of a way? And I, I pray that that's true. You know, there, there's, it's one thing, and it's something that we need to be doing just in our own uh, um, relationship with the Lord, in our homes, to be reading God's Word, praying, seeking Him, doing devotions, spending our time with the Lord in our homes. That, that, that is true. But there's something very special, isn't there, when we gather together for the purpose of meeting and worshiping and praising Him. You know, uh, worshiping him even as we sit at his feet as his word comes forth as is taking place now. You're here worshiping God, hearing his word being, being brought to you. I mean, there's something special that takes place at those moments. Um, we, we, we know that, that he inhabits 
the praises of his people. And certainly he is here with us even now. But do we have the same kind of longing that David expressed here in, in these first two verses? I, I pray that that's the case. Now in verse 3 and forward, uh, we, we see some very familiar words, um, words from a, a, a song that goes way back, your loving kindness is better than life. You guys remember singing that song? Um, Nat, I should have given you a call so we could sing that song tonight. Um, but um, yeah, precious, precious words. And you know, as, as I think about that, I just think about how you know, back in the 70s and 80s when we were singing those uh, scripture songs like that, you know, there's something special about singing songs that are straight from the Word of God, straight from God's Word, something very, very special. You think it could be because it is God's Word? <laughs> of course. That's exactly why, why that is the case. Your loving kindness is better than life. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. And this whole idea of loving kindness, God's loving kindness being better than life itself. Think about that. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He, he wrote, life is dear, but God's love is dearer. To dwell with God is better than life at its best. Life at ease, in a palace, in health, in honor, in wealth, in pleasure. Yea, a thousand lives are not equal to the eternal life which abides in Jehovah's smile. He sure had a way with words. <laughs> I, I, I love the way that he wrote that. Who, uh, who, uh, abiding in Jehovah's smile. Yes, God's loving kindness is better than life itself. That reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. When he said to the Ephesian elders, after taking note of the fact that he was receiving prophecies that when he got to Jerusalem, he was on his way to Jerusalem, he called for the Ephesian elders to meet him in Miletus on his way to Jerusalem uh, from Europe. And, and as they met there uh, on the journey, one of the prophets, Agabus, shared with him that, that he was going to be bound when he got to Jerusalem and so forth. And so he says, but none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul basically gave testimony to the truth of what David wrote. Your loving kindness is better than life. He didn't count his own life as dear to himself. What he counted as dear was serving his God and serving him to the fullest and exactly the way that God had called him to serve. That's what he found to be dear. And might we be the same? Might we understand the reality of the loving kindness of God being better than life itself?
Now, these guys present David and Paul, two of the men of God in the scriptures that we admire, give us an ex a wonderful, wonderful example. But you know, as, as we see this, um, this example that they give, we just see the, the reality of their hearts and their love for their God and just something for us to look to as, as we look at them. Now, as David writes, your loving kindness is better than life. Let's remember the time that it was that he wrote this. He was running from Jerusalem because his son Absalom was attempting a coup. And he says, your loving kindness is better than life. Does that kind of blow you away? Certainly that could not have felt like something that was dealt from, from God's loving, kind heart. Yet, he would not say anything else about God but, but the fact that it was his loving kindness that is better than life. This, this word loving kindness is the same, is a word that is in the Hebrew translated as mercy and kindness more than loving kindness. You will see the same uh, Hebrew word translated th those several ways in the Old Testament, but especially with mercy. It's, it's more often translated as mercy than any other English word uh, in, in the New King James Version as well as the NASB. But as that mercy is recognized by David, let's remember what's going on with David's life. And another passage out of 2 Samuel 15, verse 30 this time. As he's leaving, it says, So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up. And he had his head covered and went barefoot. He's grieving. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went up. Your loving kindness is better than life. Even in that situation, David acknowledges this. I, I think that's just incredible. I mean, this emotional state, and, and it's very helpful for us when we go through tough times, when we go through our own hard times. And all of us do. All of us do. Now, I dare say that none of us will be a leader of a country and then have a coup attempted against us, especially by our own child. But that was David's case. But we all go through our difficulties. Are we able to acknowledge the loving kindness and the mercy of God in those moments? Are we able to say, God, you are so good? You were so good. Guys, it's important for us to do that. Because nothing that we experience in this world alters the nature and the character of God. And he is filled with loving kindness, isn't he? As hard as our life might become, it never means that God is no longer good. 
we may not feel all that good. But God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's wanting to accomplish through the things that he brings into our lives. He knows. And it always is something that's good. Romans 8.28 is always true, guys. We know that all things work together for those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. Always. That is always true. So as, 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 as my wife and I are going through our, our present struggles, that is true. And it doesn't remove the pain, but at the same time it causes us you know, well, you know what it causes me to long for more than anything? Heaven. You know, our troubles really should cause us to long for heaven. Because once we're there, as we see uh, at the end of Revelation chapter 21, there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sickness, right? Oh, how we long for that time. Well, as... David writes, he continues in the fourth verse, thus I will bless you while I live. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you thus, or in this way, I will bless you while I live. The idea is as long as I live. Psalm 104.33 says, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. I guess a question for us on a personal level is, have, have we, have I, made that kind of commitment? A lifetime commitment to worship and praise God no matter what. No matter what happens in this life. No matter what kind of lot in life I may be given. Regardless of the difficulties that come. Because in this world we will have difficulties especially as believers in Jesus Christ. As long as I live. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. You know, as we make that lifetime commitment to, to praise our king no matter what, you know, it's going to get challenged. You know, the moment we say, I will never stop praising my God. You know who hears that? Some demon who will report to Satan. We can't say Satan hears everyone because he's not everywhere at once like God is. He can't hear everything, but he does find out about everything because he's got his demons strewn all over the place, right? He hears. And maybe the demons start to work even before the re report gets back to Satan about, you know, this guy saying he's going to praise God forever, and it becomes like a Job kind of a thing. You know, we'll see. We'll see. I'll never forget when my daughter Tracy was, she was 16, and she had asked me the question, she said, Daddy, is there ever anything I could do to make you stop loving me? I wasn't wise enough to stop and pause. And you say, okay, why is she asking me this question? She just wanted my, my love for her affirmed. That's what I believe. And of course, sweetheart, nothing. I mean, 
you're, you're always going to be my baby girl. No. Well, then the challenge to that began, challenges began to come. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't believe for a moment that she asked me that question just kind of test the waters and then so she could find out. She just wanted my love for her affirmed, but, but I believe that as, you know, the, the, the weeks went by because our enemy heard that from my lips, he moved her to test it. I really, I really believe that. I, I think that's how that worked. She didn't, she wasn't making a plan that's just how it worked out, but the enemy took advantage of it. I think that's how that worked. And, you know, I, I think one of, one of the things in, in regard to that, without giving any details, but on one particular occasion, when we were going through a particularly tough time, um, I, as her dad, was just simply very loving and gracious toward her. And that's something that she has never, ever, ever, ever forgotten. And became for her an accurate portrayal of her God toward her as well. I think that's something that's important for all of us as dads, that we represent God in the lives of our children. If we claim to love God as their father, our kids look to us as a spiritual head and if their experience is one that is a good one, they'll have a good experience with their Heavenly Father as well. Not to say that if we don't have a good one with our, our earthly father, we can't have a good one with our spiritual father, but it makes it a lot easier. Makes it a lot easier. In terms of the raising of the hands... Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. Charles Spurgeon again said this. No hands need hang down when God draws near in love. Let's catch the meaning of that. I, I agree with that. Do you guys agree with that? No, no hands need hang down when God draws near in love. The name of Jesus has often made lame men leap as a heart, and it has made sad men clap their hands for joy. I think too many times we are too reserved in our worship and praise of the Lord. I think, guys, we need to loosen up a bit. And let's raise our hands. It's something that's biblical. Isn't it? It's certainly biblical to raise our hands before him when we praise him, when we worship him. You know, as, as, as Spurgeon said, no hands need hang down when God draws near in love. We, we believe he's here, he's here with us, right? We, we need to raise our hands in, in, in adoration and praise and worship of him. As David did, I will lift up my hands in your name. He goes on, my soul shall be satisfied in this worship, acknowledging the loving kindness of his God. My soul shall be satisfied. Now again, he is running from Absalom. 
weeping as he goes. Now, not to say that it was at that moment when this was in, came to his heart, but shortly after that, I mean, this was the experience that he was feeling that, 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 that brought him to this place of, 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 of feeling like he was in a dry and thirsty land where there's no water. Because my soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. It, it would seem that David called to mind the being in Jerusalem celebrating one of the, the, the feasts, the sacrificial feast with, the, with the, the, the meat, the fatness and the marrow, you know, just having a, 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 a great porterhouse steak or, or something like that, you know, with the, can you smell it even as I'm talking on, on the grill, on the fire, you know. I wonder the Lord enjoyed, you know, the, 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 the rising of the smoke as it came from the, from the sacrifice. Oh, it smells so good. It smells so good. But that's what he's thinking about. But it's his soul being satisfied, not his flesh, his soul. So in the same way that that juicy steak that is cooked just right just is so good, satisfies the taste buds and every part of your body at that point. Like, going, oh man, that is so good. Um, that's what is happening to his soul as he acknowledges the loving kindness of God being better than life itself and praising him, lifting up his hands to the Lord because of it. His own soul, satisfied as, as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. Even in the midst of pain and sorrow. can be a challenge to praise God with a joyful heart and joyful lips in the midst of pain and sorrow, but we can do it, can't we? Because we know, and this is one thing that I've, I've been saying a lot, you know, I don't know how people who don't know the Lord can go through these kinds of, of of situation, these kinds of illnesses, these kinds of sorrows, these kinds of afflictions, these kinds of persecutions, whatever, whatever it may be. You know, I mean, what, what, it wouldn't be persecution, but they don't know the Lord. It's like, how do they manage to get through it? And I, I've come to a conclusion. They, they, they really don't. How do they deal with it? They, they're not able to deal with it, really. In, in some manufactured way or some way that they've heard, but not the Lord's way. And so it's not going to be anything that really brings healing. It's not going to be anything that really brings uh, uh, a successful end to it because if that's the case, the enemy is going to have his way with them, which is always going to be destructive. Always be destructive. And I certainly have noted in my time of ministry, whether it's on a personal level, or ministering to, to, to you, my dear sheep, that God has given to me, 
you know, I've, I've noticed how we as believers can go through stuff that in the world, people without the Lord Jesus, that these things bring destruction. But for us, God uses just simply to draw us closer. To draw us closer and to, to love him more dearly. It's amazing how he does that, but he does. That's what he does. My lips shall my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. Verse six, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Because you have been my help, therefore in the shadow of your wings I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. Can you imagine on that first night after David had fled from Jerusalem on his bed that night how he must have sought after God, cried to his God, remembering him. Spurgeon said this, if day's cares tempt us to forget God, it is well that night's quiet should lead us to remember him. To remember God. David's meditation was on the Lord. It caused me to ask myself this as I was going through this, and I think all of us should ask us this, ask ourselves this own question, this, this question. Just the idea, what, what is it that I think about at night? You know, when I lay my head on my pillow, where do my thoughts turn? What am I thinking about? Do I have a spirit that is bitter and complaining about the way the day went? Or am I remembering God? Maybe crying out to Him. Maybe seeking Him for, for forgiveness because the way I responded to the way the day went. Remembering His mercy. Remembering His loving kindness. Where do our thoughts turn? You know, that kind of speaks to the nature of who we are, really, is what is it that we do, what is it that we think about when we're alone? You know, certainly at night, when we lay our heads on that pillow, we're alone with our thoughts. You know, what, what are those thoughts? I think it's a good thing to think about. Well, David wrote that because you have been my help, as he speaks to his God, as he's, as he's praying to his God, because you have been my help, and, and, and certainly by this time, and we're talking about all of his time since the time that he was anointed by Samuel to be the next king, and everything that took place after that. I mean, it's almost like the immediate thing that took place after he was anointed to be king was he faced Goliath. In the very next chapter, that's what takes place there in 1 Samuel 17, after he's anointed in the 16th chapter. Then all the time that he's running away from, from, from King Saul, all the time that God preserved him, all the time that God saved him was his help and so forth. And here David acknowledges that. He says, um, 
because you have been my help. And, and it was like a, a constant source of help. Guarding me and, and, and protecting me in so many dangers. As that was the case, at this moment he resolved to be joyful under God's protective covering. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. Protected under the shadow of God's wings. In the same way that a, a mother hen will protect her chicks from bad weather or whatever the case may be. God protects us. So he saw himself as being protected by his God and he saw that as reason to rejoice. Again, even in the midst of what was going on in his life. Psalm 46, 1 to 3, the Psalm of David. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. And we need to pause there because David found God to be a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Because of that, he will not fear. We will not fear, he writes. Even though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Selah. The earth goes through this kind of trouble. doesn't matter. Our circumstances, our, our, our surroundings, our environment, that difficult. Still, I will not fear because, God, you're a very present help in my times of trouble. James 1, 2 and 4, don't we love this passage? My brethren, count it all joy when you encounter or when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You know, we will pray, Lord, I just want to be like, I, I, want, I want to be made like you. You know, we, we, we want to be cooperative with God and his purpose in our lives that for him, to allow him to, to form us into the image of Christ, right? That's what we want in our lives. And then as God begins to do that through the trials and the pains of life that, that are brought to us, then we can complain. It's like, you know, James says, count it all joy, knowing. Count it all joy. And this is what James is talking about. When when we are going through these various trials, we should count it joy because we know that God's at work. God's at work. He's answering our prayers. He is meeting our deepest desire to be like Jesus. Right? Right? We all need to agree with this, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that's what's going on. That knowledge doesn't take away the pain, but it brings a deep-seated joy. This doesn't mean that, that we're, we're, we're to feel bad about hurting and having pain. 
and having questions, but just the knowledge that well, God's at work. I don't really know exactly what he's doing, but I do know that he's going to make, make me more like his son. I know that. So I can rejoice in that. But Lord, this sure hurts. We get, get, Lord, be with me through it. You know, I mean, that kind of a thing, right? Verse 8, my soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. In the King James Version, the old King James Version of words that just came to my mind, my soul followeth hard after thee. Follows hard after God. Thy right hand upholdeth me. In the NASB and the ESV, the English Standard Version, uh, is translated, my soul clings to you. So following hard, following close behind you, clinging to you. And we see David here describing something that is reciprocal. It's like, while I hold you close, while I cling to you, God, you are upholding me. I hold you close, you hold me up. James writes, again, James, chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God, and what? He will draw near to you. It's like God responding to the sincerity of our faith. Right? Responding to the sincerity of our faith. Your right hand upholds me. And let's not look over. Overlook, I should say. Let's not overlook the magnificent power of God's right hand. If anything can hold me up, it's the right hand of God. The most powerful, the most powerful thing there is in the universe, God's right hand. That just speaks of his power is what it is. God himself. Verse 9 through 11, and we'll close. But those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him, by God, shall glory. But the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. Those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. Doesn't seem like David had a problem. I mean... In these verses before, he, he's just praising God. And, and now he says, those who are seeking to destroy my life, they're going to be going to the lower parts of the earth. They're going to be spending some time in Hades. Is what he's saying there. In Psalm 35, 7 to 8, For without cause they have hidden their net for me in a pit, David writing, of his enemies, which they have dug without cause for my life. Let destruction come upon him unexpectedly. Let his net that he has hidden catch himself into that very destruction. Let him fall. We, we, we've talked about the imprecatory psalms, imprecatory aspects of the psalms in which David is, is uh, writing about what the outcome for his enemies. Um, 
In the pulpit commentary, it said this. There's this uh, entry. But it is to be remembered that David views his enemies not merely as his own foes, but as the foes of God and of Israel. As the servant of God, he must hate those who are opposed to God. As the king of Israel, he must hate those who seek to injure and ruin his people. He does not, however, desire for them suffering or torment. He only asks that they may be removed from this sphere into another world. But we know what he's saying. And I know something my, my wife would say about that. She would say, that's not nice. But coming from the perspective that as David saw himself being the king of Israel, as representative of Israel, and any of his enemies, because God had placed him there as king, and any of the enemies of Israel, because this is God's people, any enemies of God's people are enemies of God himself. And so, it's fitting. Yet it's interesting that this, these are words that he's speaking about his enemies, and at the present time, his enemy was his son. In the 18th chapter of 2 Samuel, we see when David receives word that Absalom has been killed. After, by the way, him giving ex explicit instructions not to kill him, um, he weeps. He tears his clothing. He weeps. Mourns for his son. Wishing that he himself had been the one who was, was killed rather than his son. I think, though, in the writing of this, given the reality of the enemies of God, the Spirit led him to write this about God's enemies, even knowing that his son was an enemy of God at this particular moment. Hard thing. There are hard truths in our lives, aren't there? This is one of those hard truths for David. One of those hard truths. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. We see Jesus says in Matthew 26, 52, put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Who did he say that to? You guys remember? Peter. Remember when Peter took out his little sword and he was going to start killing people and he winds up whacking off the, the, the ear of the servant of Malchus and all. And, and uh, Jesus said, put it away. If you, if you take the sword or if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. There should be a portion for jackals. Um, eaten by the wild animals. Not fit for the honor of a proper burial. That's the idea behind that. And then verse 11, But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory, but the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped 
Deuteronomy 6.13 says, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. It was just a, a way of showing that you really do believe in God, that you really are one of his, that you believe in his name, you believe in his power, you believe in his goodness. So taking an oath in his name is something that you would do in order to honor him. And you would follow through because of that. That's the idea behind it. In Titus 1, 10, 1, 10 and 11, in reference to the mouths must be stopped, he wrote this, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Is... Um, Mounting a coup against a, a, a sitting king, uh, seeking dishonest gain, I, I think it fits into that category. But of course, Titus is talking about um, false teachers. Those who are in opposition to God's truth, opposition to the gospel. We must stand alongside God's word consistently, shouldn't we? And live by it, speak of it, teach it, share it with others as we have opportunity because it is alone the truth. And in, in our world where truth is not valued, it becomes a difficult thing. We ought to do so nonetheless. And so Psalm 63, the Psalm of David as he writes while he's in the wilderness. I pray that when we go through our own wilderness experiences, that we have this same heart of praise for God. And, and Lord, help us. Help us in that. Help us to praise you even when it's hard. Help us to honor you, Lord, when the days are difficult, painful. Lord, all of us do go through these times. For some of us, perhaps, we're going through a time where it's not happening. Others, it can be very painful right now, but we go through these ups and downs in life, these hills and valleys. Lord, thank you that you always are there. Thank you that we can cry out to you. Thank you that even as we thirst for you, as if we are in a dry and thirsty land where there's no water, Lord, we find you to satisfy our hearts. Lord Jesus, you give us that living water by which, as you speak about your Holy Spirit, by which we receive this connection with you and we're able to find life, able to find truth, we're find, able to find love and peace and hope and joy. All of the fruit of your Spirit Thank you, Lord. I pray for those who are with us now that are going through a difficult time. I pray that all of us, Lord, will cry out to you and seek to praise you, to acknowledge your goodness, even in the midst of the hard times, even in the midst of the pain. Lord, have your way with us. Be glorified in us and through us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's all stand together, guys.